0: Well, as we keep discovering, there are many different ways into understanding London. Very often it's through looking at the lives and deeds of individuals. But sometimes you can't help noticing that an institution has had an enormous effect on the shape of our capital. We regularly run into royalty, sometimes encounter the church. But what about a faceless organisation and one that has no particular moral outlook? And one that doesn't even pretend to look out for the people? It's Friday the 11th of April 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights in the sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a long through from Yeah. Now we are in one of the most luxurious places we've ever recorded, Londonist out loud. Imagine Dragon's Den. It's a very industrial sort of setup, but now made for business. We're on Devonshire Square. And with me is Dr. Will Pettigrew from the University of Kent. And, well, we're going to have to dig into why we are here on Devonshire Square. Hi, Will.
1: Hi. Devonshire Square is one of those great, sprawling city complexes that gives a new name to a very old and important London institution. Um, it was in the late 18th early 19th century one of the most important and the largest warehousing complexes for the east india company which speaking of dragon's den you know makes some of those characters look like corporate midgets <laughs>
0: Not a phrase we have, of course, to use every week on the show. We're going to, uh, therefore, this week, be unpacking the East India Company and London, and we should probably locate Devonshire Square in London for those who haven't stumbled upon it because we're set back
1: a little bit from uh, where I, th- I think we're close to Bishopsgate. That's correct. So you come out of the Liverpool Street end of Liverpool Street Station and uh, turn left, cross over Bishopsgate, and Devonshire Square is a complex that that basically runs along the side of Bishopsgate but is set back perhaps a block. It's a very nice-looking
0: place, very, very tidy. You get the impression that there are lots of people here who uh, are are taking a few minutes off from working within the buildings and they're at some of the, I would say, relatively high-class restaurants and cafes and bars and so forth. Security is uh, subtle but tight. Yeah, it looks like a good place to hang out. I know they've got wonderful fairs and so forth through the year and we'll come to those later. But what was this place back in the day? Where are we going back to historically to start our
1: story? So we're going back to the the, the period, um, a a turbulent one for the British government, the final quarter of the 18th century. Um, So those difficult years for the British government after the loss of the American colonies. Um, And we typically understand this period uh, as a period in which the City of London and the British government shifts its focus from the Atlantic and the American colonies uh, towards Asia, and in particular the Indian subcontinent. Unlike Atlantic attempts to form corporations to manage trade and the imperial relationship between Britain and uh, non-European areas, uh, the Indian attempt to do the same thing, that is form a company to manage that relationship, uh, was very, very successful. So uh, by the end of the 18th century, the East India Company's uh, consolidating its its hold over England's relationship with India and indeed is, is, is consolidating its hold over India itself. So you might see this building, and it is one in, in very good condition, um, uh, and it still has a kind of corporate shine to it as the epitome of that very successful stage in the East India Company's history. So 1770s,
0: 1780s. Yes, it's got that very airy feel, hasn't it? The tall windows and the small panes of glass within them. Uh, lots of space and light. What I know about the uh, East India Company at the moment could be uh, sketched out on the back of a small stamp, Um, but my impression of it, I suppose, is something akin to the Empire in Star Wars. It seems to um, start out with uh, some sort of trade thing and just uh, stretch its uh, evil fingers into all sorts of stuff that it shouldn't. Uh, Sort of having a quasi-militaristic role, and uh, where am I getting this impression from? You're getting
1: that from Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. Not as good a film as Star Wars. But I like your Star Wars analogy. East India Company is the kind of epitome of corporate success, of not just corporate success, but empire building in a kind of ambiguous, um, an unsettlingly ambiguous combination of private and public power of of corporate initiative uh, and also military uh, means. Um, And it's all of those things. This is what makes the company so fascinating. This is a company that utterly transforms the world, not just England, not just Europe, not just uh, Asia famously, not just India, but also East Asia, but also has important um, um, contributions to make to American history as well. But it's something we cannot categorize satisfactorily. In order to make sense of the chaos of the past, historians have to find categories to analyze it. And the East India Company is an organization so big and so important and so ambiguous that it's impossible to categorize as public or private, as imperial, or as tolerant, as national, as corporate, as political, as economic. That's what makes it so interesting. So you're going to need a big stamp for me to, to really um, hammer home a summary of what it's all about. But I like the Star Wars thing. That works. Well, we've got lots of uh,
0: space, literally and, and metaphorically here, uh, or te- I should say temporally and uh, physically. Day one, what's, what's day one of the East India Company? Does it, does it sort of spring up deliberately, or does it manifest itself out of other things, or how does it work? Let me give you the, the, the,
1: the prequel. Um, higher quality than the Star Wars prequels, I hope. Um, the Reformation in England establishes england as a protestant country Uh, for for overseas listeners we're talking 1500s there we're looking at 15 uh, the middle of the 16th century Uh, we can debate when england becomes a protestant country but in the 16th century at some point Um, nationalism comes alongside uh, the establishment of a uniform religion for england and so the competition between england and other european rivals within europe uh, intensifies and grows um, with the discovery, in inverted commas, of America, with the European engagement with America, you see uh, two things. A further intensification of this European rivalry uh, and a new setting for, in which this European rivalry can take place. Now, it's the Spanish who get their hands on the tremendous monetary wealth of uh, South and Central America first. And so the English are really just pirates in the Atlantic trying to get hold of... Um, uh, little slices, little tidbits of that wealth, intercepting those ships as they come back into the Mediterranean. Um, Francis Drake and other characters are famous for this. Uh, On a couple of occasions, they're extremely successful, intercepting the the entire fleet of bullion-laden Spanish uh, ships coming back across the uh, Atlantic Ocean. This really was licensed piracy, wasn't it? It was. I mean, countenanced and encouraged by the, the English monarchy, the English state. What does this have to do with India? Um, well, some of the, the bounty from those voyages is invested in a uh, company that allows uh, the English state to encourage a commercial relationship between England and the Ottoman Empire. It's known as the Levant Company or the Turkey Company. So that, that, that capital accumulated in Caribbean piracy is translated into a Levant company. The Levant company is a reference to what we would still call the Levant today. So that's essentially the area around uh, Israel, uh, Syria, uh, the uh, eastern Mediterranean. But actually, its most important commercial target is the Ottoman Empire itself, which of course occupies that that area, um, but is is also sprawling over most of um, the Middle East in general um, at this
0: point. When the company is named after that area, and I'm asking because I'm preempting another company that's going to be named after another geographic area, uh, can, can you just pinpoint for me why, why it is named that? When you, is it going after uh, trade there? Is the money being pumped into that area? What's, what's
1: the connection? That is a, uh, an area from which the company derives its name that the English state is trying to develop a commercial relationship with. So that's a long way from here. From London, uh, especially in the 16th century, to embark on a voyage uh, over that uh, distance is very risky. So, what you want to do is pool that risk into a company. The company, at this point, um, is really just um, a, a collective for trade that has a legal authority, has a legal protection. Often, that legal protection takes the form of a monopoly. That's, in a sense, the reward for investing. You get the you get the first dibs. on uh, on, on the fruits of that commerce. Um, So the naming of the company is just a description of the uh, geographical area in which you believe the commercial gains may be made. So we've shifted from Caribbean piracy into the the will and desire to trade with um, the most important uh, empire of the uh, 16th and 17th century, that is the Ottoman Empire, Within 20 years, much of the capital gain from that trading enterprise is then itself reinvested in another corporate uh, venture established uh, by the Levant Company, uh, known as the uh, East India Company. So it's, it's stage three of an accumulation of capital that begins with piracy uh, in the Western Atlantic. What I'm, the point I'm making here is it's called the East India Company. And yes, that is a a description of the geographical area uh, in which it trades, but it's really um, an incarnation that has a kind of global setting and a global significance. Is the uh, well? Maybe we should talk about trade
0: more generally, and particularly tying it closely to London. What was uh, what was happening here, and uh, were were we at a sort of a, a commercial hub in
1: London? Uh, absolutely. I mean, London is uh, um, today, as it was in the 16th century and earlier, uh, essentially an entity that existed to monopolize commercial opportunity in one place. Um, of course, there were other trading towns around the uh, country, Bristol, uh, Exeter, Plymouth, but they, weren't, uh, uh, they didn't have the same kind of privileged political and constitutional position that London, has, uh, London had and, and still does, let's face it. So these companies uh, often stipulated that to be a member of the company, to trade within its infrastructure, or indeed to invest in its stock, you had to be a freeman of the City of London. In other words, if if you're a Bristolian, don't even think about it, and if you're a Bristolian wanting to trade to the Ottoman Empire or or, or to the East Indies, you're in trouble. That's a serious crime, and the state would use its resources to intercept you, uh, sequester your property, and, and prosecute you. So this is all about channelling the uh, fruits of international commerce through London. That's what these companies exist to do.
0: Maybe we should say something about the effect on the ground of all this trade going on from distant parts. Uh, How would people see the effects of that
1: trade? For the first hundred years, um, the -the on-the-ground effects of this probably be limited to a slow realisation that people were wearing different clothes clothes that had come from uh, the eastern Otto- Ottoman Empire and, and China that were made of silk or, or, or precious fabrics that the English were not used to wearing um, so the, and this is spoken of in the 17th century what you see uh, over the course of the century is a sort of slow but unsettled appreciation of the intrusion of foreign um, uh, commercial styles, clothing.
0: And presumably that would be, I'm sure it's anachronistic to call it the luxury end of the market, but
1: uh, it would be uh, very wealthy people would. Yeah, I mean, it's not anachronistic. Luxury was exactly the word they would have used. They would have had a different connotation, that somehow using these fabrics, and they were expensive... Uh, was disadvantaging the domestic producer, uh, uh, and was um, uh, expressive of a newfound interest in um, outward appearance and uh, consumption for its own sake. That was socially unsettling. So, luxury was 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 a word they would have used, but had a very specific uh, association for that word.
0: So, we've got the birth of consumerism.
1: Yeah, um, but but mainly for those with uh, a higher disposable income. I suppose the other thing that you would see uh, in the first half of the uh, 18th century is the increasing uh, consumption of tea. I mean, that's what most people associate the East India Company with. That is itself a luxury for the first uh, um, stage of importation, but becomes by the second of the, of the 18th century something that uh, uh, many people are able to consume and enjoy. now. Uh, particularly
0: anybody who uh, is outside of the UK will almost certainly know of our reputation as tea drinkers. Whether we've s- still put as much of it away as we used to, I'm not quite sure. But have we ever seen tea before
1: that period? W- was anybody interested? Or Good question. I'm, I'm tempted to reach for my cup of coffee at this point and, uh, and ruminate on that further. But I, I, I think coffee was much more familiar to people. This is an import from the Middle East, um, but also from, from India. One of the important um, uh, uh, import goods from the East India Company, and it's very important to stress that the East India Company had jurisdiction commercially over the Indian subcontinent as well as the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire, um, was coffee uh, in the 17th century. And coffee is the beverage of the 17th century. Tea is the beverage of the, really the 19th century, the later part of the 18th century. So coffee was an important uh, import. Um, Other than that, um, the conspicuous on-the-ground street level uh, significance of the East India Company I think would have gone uh, would, would, uh, would was not there for the 17th century
0: How are we doing economically then? Because it sounds as though we uh, our interests were far uh, around the globe and it, it sounds like a buoyant time potentially were we on a, an economic uh, upturn? Absolutely
1: so it's a really important fact about the history of the city of London that the city And the domestic economy grows um, in one of its most crucial uh, stages of expansion uh, more in the 1660s, 1670s, 1680s than it does at any other point right up into the 19th century. And this happens against the backdrop of the rebuilding of the city. If you want to imagine the most dynamic period in, in, in London's economic expansion, it's that period when the city stands in ruins. And Economists would have, an, you know, would would connect those two processes in a very important way. That is to say, that uh, infrastructure projects, you know, imagine the rebuilding of the city as, as a giant infrastructure project, it's kind of high speed too, um, pull together resources, uh, capture uh, entrepreneurialism, and give a kind of motion to an economy that's very very important. That's part of the explanation, but the other explanation is that um, England is engaging with non-European trade in a much more serious and concerted way in that period because of these companies. East India Company, Levant Company, Royal African Company, uh, uh, Hudson's Bay Company to Canada, uh, uh, as is now. Um, And these companies basically represent a a collusion of the collective entrepreneurial spirit of the City of London's mercantile elite – and the will displayed by the absolutist monarchy of the later Stuarts, that is Charles II and James II, uh, to develop these economies so that they could benefit. The merchants would benefit and the monarchy would benefit. Why does the monarchy need to benefit at this point? Well, we've had the English Civil War, in which the monarchy has really been exposed as a self-seeking organisation that's not good uh, for the public interest. Um, The monarchy has to keep reaching to Parliament... Uh, to finance itself it has to keep going to the populace to say you know, will you grant the money to finance the monarchy overseas trade provides a way of, of short circuiting that of, of bypassing parliament because if you can develop overseas trade and tax it and funnel it through your own coffers then you don't need parliament anymore
0: and presumably the monarch was the one issuing uh, various licences to trade and so forth. So uh, I've got the impression in certain industries at the moment, uh, the food industry is one that always gets mentioned, that there are sort of two or three big companies, and that's, that's about your lot. Uh, and at the same might be said of uh, perhaps oil pr- production and, and things like that. So it doesn't sound on, on the face of it as though we've moved very far beyond uh, what you're describing
1: here, with the exception of a sort of monopoly law. Mm-mm. Yeah, these are certainly big multinationals. In a sense, they're the founding generation of big multinationals, and they are given monopoly privileges. You know, that's, that's kind of legitimate in the 17th century. As I mentioned before, it's really the reward for hazarding um, and adventuring into these very risky overseas trade. No one would invest in them unless they had the right to uh, monopolize them at the same time. I suppose the difference with these companies in the 17th century is that they are much more diversified in terms of what they export and what they import. And they're much more interesting, I think, politically and socially. Um, their re- a relationship with government and the constitution and with political thought and with economic thought is, is much richer and much fuller. Corporate bodies today um, tend to be more specialist. Um, they tend to seek monopoly, but they, they're not allowed to. Um, and uh, the relationship with government is just a straightforward one of uh, you know, attempts to lobby policy and success at times, but but it doesn't have the same symbiotic relationship as the 17th and 18th century companies like the East India Company had uh, with the formation of the English state. Could you develop that a little more then? Yeah, think of a few examples. Yes, they're founded, these companies, by a specific branch of the constitution. That is the monarchy. And they are founded in order to buttress the, the economic... Uh, political and constitutional power of the, of, of the monarchy. But of course, over the course of the 17th century, the constitution is is, is unsettled by the view that parliament should really be in control of the, the decision-making apparatus of the state. So opposition um, from merchants who are who frozen out of these companies assumes a kind of constitutional importance uh, in and uh, of itself. So over the course of the 17th century... Um, outsiders into the companies are able to develop political ideas and economic ones in opposition to the companies that have an effect on the way in which the economic theory is conceptualised. This also has an important international connotation. The English economy for for two, three, four hundred years before the foundation of the East India Company had been built solely around the export of wool and woolen cloth So when the East India Company is founded, the English uh, merchants who run it are trying to find a a good that they can export to uh, Indonesia or or, or India. You know, what are the people in Indonesia going to do with thick woolen jumpers, essentially? It's a difficult call to make commercially to export what England had been exporting for a long time. So from the beginning, they work out the only thing that we can uh, successfully export to India is cash. That is precious metal. So the the East India Company becomes this giant kind of funnel for precious metal uh, excavated in South America uh, into uh, those great uh, bullion-consuming economies of China uh, and Asia. But 16th and 17th century economic theory says that the wealth and power of the government derives from how much precious metal you can... Uh, you can bring into your country, right? You've got to bring in as much and you've got to sit on it and uh, the wealth of the country comes from storing all that gold and silver. So the East India Company basically has to reinvent economic theory by saying, actually, rather than uh, hoarding all this precious metal, if we trade it and exchange it for other goods and commodities, our economy will grow and multiply. And this is a foundation, foundational insight of, of, of modern classical economic theory. So, out of the desire to lobby to justify these companies' privileges and trades, come these very important uh, shifts in economic theory and political thought. Yes, it sounds like a crowbar
0: has been wedged between... The, the, the two ideas have been prized apart, haven't they? The, uh, the, the inherent value of an object and the sort of notional value of it. We're, what are we doing for currency at this point, by the way? Are we still in a, a place where coins can be clipped and all that stuff? Is it, is it still the, the value of the
1: metal of the coin? That's right, yeah. We're in a kind of a, a period in which the intrinsic uh, metallic value of the, the coin is very important. The coins... Uh, when we, we have the Bank of England later in the 17th century... But each note issued by the bank, it, it is still understood to be convertible into precious metal. That relationship changes over the course of, the, uh, of, of history. But yes, we are, we are in a period here in which uh, currency's value uh, is determined by the understanding a- 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 and the fact of a, of a precious metal content. Well, I haven't yet heard
0: any uh, signs that the East India Company is going to do anything but uh, succeed and let it go on forever. But of course, uh, it's not around anymore, so something is going to go wrong somewhere along the line. Uh, we're going to find out what that might be after a, a short word from our a sponsor, with whom we have an excellent commercial relationship.
1: London Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of sixty thousand titles, try the Audible service on thirty-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through.
0: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. We are at Devonshire Square. And, uh, well, I hope we've made it clear why we're at Devonshire Square. We we should underline that, probably. Uh, They're treating us very well here. I must say. And I don't know if you've had a chance to get down here yourself, but you you should. There's lots going on. And I know they've got a summer fest coming up, of which they're extremely proud. Uh, We've mentioned the many food stalls. There was a a roasting hog outside as I came in, and their food fair looks like it might well entertain your taste buds. I'm here with Dr. Will Pettigrew. We're talking about the East India Company and uh, its sort of global reach from this hub of London. Let's just underscore the relevance of us being
1: here in Devonshire Square yeah this is the sole uh, remaining building that belonged to the East India Company this part of London where we are in between uh, Liverpool Street Station and uh, I suppose Tower Hamlets was utterly dominated by the company there were uh, many many warehouses here uh, and alongside the, the company's road commercial road that connected the company's uh, headquarters on Leadenhall Street to its 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 uh network of docks that it helped also to build so this we're right in the center of what was a whole district of the city of london that was owned and managed by the east india company ah some of those street names are starting to have a little more resonance in my ear
0: now commercial street commercial road any other street names that would connect us to the east india company and its doings
1: there was i was walking earlier in uh, just off Cornhill uh, corn Hill, there's bengal court um, which is right next to where the East India Company's coffee house was, the Jerusalem coffee house. So, yes, I mean, it, the association's going to penetrate further into the to the city. But as I said, this, this connection between Corporate HQ and Leadenhall Street and the docks, which is basically where we're sitting now, w- was the East India Company's kind of manor. It's
0: interesting that you mentioned coffee shops, or coffee houses rather. We, it's a long time since one of those has had a mention on the show. And... Uh... Oh, this was very much the time when they started to uh, get a, a life of their own. That's
1: right. Yeah, uh, sort of halfway through the 17th century, coffee houses begin to spring up and, and kind of proliferate around the city and, and and then into the into the West End. And we can really associate the East India Company and its uh, escalating business uh, with them, insofar as yes, coffee is one of the import goods that the the uh, company brings in. But it's company management, uh, company ships' captains, company shareholders who form the kind of one of the the, uh, the mass of population swirling around in those coffee houses. So uh, ripe with the gossip and uh, sort of possibilities for
0: connections and trade.
1: Uh, yeah, pirates swarming around off the uh, you know Gujarati coast. Um, news of you know uh, shipwrecks. Of Japan, um, all of this kind of uh, exotic uh, material um, had, as its kind of focal point, the East India Company's activities in the seventeenth and eighteenth and uh, nineteenth centuries.
0: We're going to move on with the story of the East India Company and perhaps touch on one or two of the personalities associated with uh, the the company and the period. Uh, But I realise we've said very little about yourself. You're you're a doctor of uh, what? History, I presume?
1: That's right, doctor of history. What has led you to examine this particular subject? The difficulty of categorising the East India Company as a kind of historical actor set alongside its obvious uh, historical significance. As um, the developer of uh, globalised trade, as the developer of uh, English prosperity, and the developer of, of uh, various foundational aspects of uh, the history of modern India, I wonder whether
0: that's a, cho- a choice then of uh, of something to be working on. Is is that um, because it just naturally? Uh, excites you as an idea and there's there's plenty of meat on the bone there or, or are there practical consequences in terms of the life academic where you've got to have something of this sort of uh, sprawling sort to
1: be able to get your teeth stuck in i'm not sure i'm prepared to see the distinction between the two of them at this point i mean having uh, spent the day reading and scratching my head and wandering around london uh, waiting for inspiration um, no, it's, it's a subject that's, uh, that's I think, important in, underst- in helping us understand why the world is the way it is today. Um, I mean, it's impossible to understand the 21st century without appreciating the fact that most people in India speak English. No East India company, no English being spoken in, in India, perhaps. Um, so, th- I mean, as far as I'm concerned, academic life should be uh, useful in explaining the way in which uh, the present and the future might go um but it it's it's a story brimming with um adventure, uh, exoticism, um, uh, yes, intellectual kind of uh, fodder, but also uh, romance, uh, excitement, tragedy, violence, uh, wealth, politics, corruption. everything is there. Right, let's
0: have a bit of that. Where to start? That sounds thrilling. I think we've set the scene very thoroughly now, and we've had a sort of a considered lead into the East India Company. Let's get, get into some of that meat.
1: One of the things I've been reading about recently is the way in which pirates, who everybody loves, play a part in allowing the East India Company to justify increasing and escalating its political position in England, but also increasing its... Uh, political position in the Indian subcontinent, in the Mughal uh, Empire. Let me give you an example of that. So pirates are the kind of epitome of, well, in the 21st century, kind of toddler parties and and fun. Um, But in the 17th and 18th century, they're the epitome of of deregulated trade. Uh, This is free trade gone mad. um, And uh, the East India Company, obviously as a monopoly company, is the kind of other end of the spectrum. And these pirates were roaming around not just in the Caribbean, um, but also uh, in the Indian Ocean as well. And one of the things they really wanted to get their teeth into on multiple occasions was to intercept uh, the Mughal uh, emperor's uh, uh, fleet, convoy of ships often containing his family and gifts that was traveling from Surat, uh, the Mughal Empire's uh, port, uh, to the Hajj uh, in Mecca. Believe it or not, uh, some English pirates uh, intercepted this fleet, uh, stole um, its cargo, including members of the Mughal emperor's uh, family, and, according to some accounts, uh, abused, assaulted uh, some of these uh, characters. So the East India Company at that point was in the firing line from the uh, Mughal empire, saying, you know, these people are English, therefore you must be responsible for them. You claim to have sovereignty for English people in this area. Instead, your company did something very smart, which is to say, well, well, they might be English, but, you know they're not part of our crew if you give us a more of a commercial privilege and improve our political position in your territory we'll be able to help you track these people down and manage them uh, more carefully so we've got a protection racket going on protection racket exactly and that's one way to characterize the companies uh, in their international uh, operations the other thing i've been reading about a bit is is the company as yes a state-sponsored governmental organization at home and abroad but really, in in actual fact, overseas providing a kind of infrastructure for the creation of private fortunes, private money. Robert Clive is perhaps the most famous person, Clive of India, uh, who was able to use the East India Company as as an infrastructure to gather an immense amount of personal wealth for himself. But there are earlier and perhaps more important examples of that. Private traders within uh, the uh, English-Indian remit Uh, were at times working with the East India Company's monopoly, but at other times were doing a bit on the side. Uh, And the most famous person here was a man called Thomas Pitt, who became known as Diamond Pitt for the rest of the 17th uh, and early 18th century. It's a person who got hold of um, an enormous um, regent, known as the Regent Diamond, ultimately, in the 18th century. This is a diamond of 410 carats, Um, I mean, that's the sort of, what is it, cricket ball size uh, that he was able to bring back into England, um, tried for many, many years to sell it, eventually sold it to the French crown um, for um, hundreds of thousands of pounds. And it became the kind of uh, crowning glory of the uh, French crown jewels worn by Marie Antoinette and other people in the 18th century. This one transaction was able to build a political dynasty uh, in the 18th century. Thomas Pitt's Grandson became Pitt the Elder, uh, and his great grandson, Pitt the Younger, who invented income tax and prevented us from being conquered by France. So there's an interesting kind of circularity um, uh, about this story. But the point is the East India Company is a state sponsored governmental machine, but it provides infrastructure for private individuals to profit for themselves. I think you could say the same thing about the British Empire in general. If you did an audit on the British Empire over the course of its entire history from, you know, 1500 to 1950 and said, you know, was it more, was it profitable? Um, I'd say that it probably wasn't profitable for the British government throughout that period because it was so expensive to manage it. But there are conspicuous and important examples of private individuals being able to use that infrastructure to create immense wealth. Cecil Rhodes, Thomas Pitt, uh, Clive of India william beckford all of these characters the empire is is something that allows entrepreneur, entrepreneurial individuals to prosper
0: but it does sound as though those individuals would have to have been quite a long way up the social ladder uh, in order to be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities going on there they'd have needed to be in the right place right time but also the right class and um, be able to get out and about and be mobile and and make these trades right
1: I think that's partially true. I think that actually one of the interesting things about these companies are, yes, they are exclusive bodies designed to keep certain people out. But at the same time, the world of commerce is a a social leveller in this period. Think of Dick Whittington, the great myth of the City of London as as an institution that uh, favours social mobility. Um, There are plenty of examples of the City of London bringing... Um, sort of middling sort, uh, middle class people into London and, and then converting them into very, very wealthy city city grandees. And the East India Company provides a similar uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, these are people who are not titled. These are people who may be younger sons of gentry, but not aristocracy, who are able to use these institutions to to create wealth far in excess of the oldest aristocratic families in England and there are all sorts of merchants doing that. So yeah, they're not we're not talking about, you know, street sweepers of the 17th century, but we're talking about an infrastructure that allows for social mobility in a very very profound and important way that tarnishes in a way or adds to the shine of uh, the prestige of, of, of aristocracy. And, and the other important thing to say about the institution and its its influence on political uh, life in, 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 in England is that it's, it's a very bureaucratic organisation so it's kind of techniques of management become formative for the, how the British state operates it plays an important part in financing the British state um, and uh, it establishes a, a meritocratic system for appointing people into its organisation it has colleges and exams it, it is very inspirational for the way in which the English civil service actually uh, is set up so, yeah, we're not talking about, as I said, very, very poor people getting a social opportunity, but we're talking about middle class people being elevated into a new class of, of wealth and, and power. Mm. Before the middle class proper existed, I suppose. But Perhaps.
0: Uh, I always associate that with the Victorian period. I imagine that, that kind of clerical middle class appearing around about then.
1: Yeah, but um, if you, if you take overseas trade in general is seen as one of those uh, public goods that enables uh, those people who are willing to hazard their uh, uh, fortunes and take risks with long-distance commerce uh, to translate uh, their gains into social and political power. So overseas trade appears to be um, uh, an opportunity for new social groups and social climbing. But that's not to say that those candy aristocrats who've always been at the top of the political pile are not able to use it for the same ends.
0: Well now I'm going to attempt a very confident link well aware that my uh, knowledge of history may be lacking so I'm, with huge confidence and no preamble I'm going to say but there were storm clouds gathering because not very far down the line London's trade particularly its, its far-reaching international trade and money-making schemes and so forth were going to bring the country to its knees.
1: The South Sea Company is something that's perplexed people. It is definitely modelled model on the East India Company insofar as... Uh, the architect of the South Sea sk- Scheme, Robert Harley, noticed how over the course of the 17th century the East India Company's relationship with the state had been made more intimate. And basically the state had, had continued to endorse its commercial privileges in exchange for initially straightforward bribes, but by the end of the century, um, vast loans uh, to the extent that the British state was you know, partially financed by the, the, the proceeds of, of, uh, of trade with with India, they'd also noticed how uh, a trade in uh, stock in these companies, the kind of stock exchange element of all of this, created an economic opportunity that the government wished to benefit from, that is uh, escalating stock prices. South Sea Company was designed to do the same thing, arguably, uh, with reference to South American trade. But the jury's still out on whether or not the architects of the scheme actually understood it to have a a viable commercial future or whether or not it was a giant kind of manipulation of of a particularly buoyant European stock market. Um, After the the bursting of that bubble, the East India Company is very successfully able to detach itself from the poor reputation of joint stock companies. Uh, How how was it able to do that? Well, it was able to point to the, 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 the viability of its trade. Uh, and the very real economic opportunities it provided. Um, It wasn't a kind of chimera in that sense. It was a a long-established and profitable trade whose relationship with the government was secure, who produced uh, wealth on an impressive scale, albeit for a selective group of people. So um, as long as these companies were understood to have some kind of substance to them, um, and as long as that substance was understood to be good for the government, rather than, you know, uh, dissolving of its financial prospects, as the South Sea Company was, um, then they could continue. Although it has to be said, joint stock companies are not often formed for trade uh, after the 1720s, and the East India Company really goes it alone for the rest of the 18th and 19th century. It's, it's kind of unique uh, from that point onwards. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so that
0: sort of ties in then with what you were saying about the d- divorce of uh, objects from their intrinsic worth. And it sounds like the South Sea bubble was that going far too far and everyone getting their fingers burnt and then having to pull it all back a bit.
1: I think that's, a, that's well put. And one of the criticisms people had with joint stock companies um, from the second half of the 17th century and through the 18th century is that they understood... Well, they characterise them as being soulless or invisible uh, organisations. You hear this said about corporations today. Yeah, what is a corporation? It's Well, it's a kind of separate legal personality. What does it consist of? Well, it, it consists of a bunch of people, but it also has this kind of animate quality, this um, invisible quality. That is its stock that seems to have a kind of political meaning and power in and of itself. It's like a sort of... Uh, you know, sorcerer's apprentice. You know, what, what, once you form that body, uh, what is it able to do? And the answer to that question is all sorts of things. It's a massive amount of liquidity that can be used to finance the government, finance 200,000 uh, troops in India, uh, finance uh, incredible uh, global commercial and political reach. Um, so our contemporary suspicion of what corporations do is partly founded on a 17th century action to... A lack of soul or a lack of uh, visibility Uh, that is something that exists only in law and you can't look it in the eye although we're looking it in the eye now, it's the only bit that's left this this is the good thing about what we're doing now it's bricks and mortar of the company that we can see
0: You've brought us very nicely back to London and I sort of want to make sure that our feet are on London soil for a little bit and get a sense of, rather than us being out there doing, uh, doing business, what about uh, what was going on here and how was the East India Company seen by uh, Londoners?
1: Well, I think by the 18th century, its participation in London life was even more conspicuous. In the 17th century, it it, it it occupied quite a modest sort of timber-framed corporate headquarters on Leadenhall Street. By the period just after the South Sea Bubble, in fact, that building had been replaced by a, a rather impressive stone, classical. Uh, Edifice and it was beginning to buy up land around that with warehouses like the one we're uh, sitting in now uh, it was beginning to develop a good reputation for kind of corporate philanthropy um, its goods were were, were reaching a, a more mass market so um, things like tea and, and coffee and and textiles uh, were, were flowing into the English economy in a much more conspicuous way it was providing an infrastructure for more and more people's employment not just in London but also overseas so it would really be regarded along with the Bank of England as one of those great institutions of city life uh, with tremendous wealth and eminence uh, and um, like I said that would have translated into relationships with, with city churches and uh, and, and some, some philanthropic uh, activity so like the Corporation of London itself, it would have become one of those great uh, institutions of the city. You say would have, and
0: I know that there's uh, we, there's a little detail here that we're, maybe we could uh, reserve for later on, but with broad brushstrokes we'll say that the East India Company no longer exists. Why
1: not? This has everything to do with um, I suppose shifts in economic theory that the company, as I explained earlier, was partly responsible for that from the 18th to the 19th century the argument that uh, economies uh, and economics should be entirely separate from government and politics was was gaining traction uh, this is what leads to uh, a series of uh, tragedies in the 19th century including the Irish potato famine, that you can't intervene in, in international trade even if it looks like you know, people are going to be uh, starving to death. Companies like the East India Company that had been around by the middle of the 19th century for 250 years looked like, as Adam Smith described them, kind of um, you know, totems of, of class and economic privilege that were, that were not contributing to an efficiently functioning economy. And what you wanted to do is open access to, to these trades to everybody and that with deregulation of trade came economic growth, that kind of classic liberal equation that we're all familiar with now that's part of the story, so there's a kind of broader shift away from companies that had really been there from the 17th century onwards what makes the Indian company much more exposed to that criticism by the middle of the 19th century is the Indian mutiny itself that is uh, the huge population that the company is ruling over by the middle of the 19th century, uh, unsurprisingly uh, uh, is is not happy to be ruled in quite that way You, you do use the word ruled Absolutely. And so there's a violent uh, beginning of the Indian independence movement, really, in the middle of the 19th century. And the first thing the British government does is to to say, well, that mounting criticism that comes from economic theory against corporate management of this trade um, is actually onto something and provides the means of deregulating the trade instead of opening up free trade to everybody which i suppose is is part and parcel of the impact what they're really trying to do is to get the british government to run india directly so rather than have a company do it which is a kind of public private partnership the government is going to do it directly so in a a sense it leads to an escalation of, of imperial power there um um, but it also leads to uh, a deregulation of the economic uh, relationship between India and, and, uh, and Britain because the company as a monopoly is no longer functioning.
0: So it's removing the, the ambiguity, for better or worse, it's removing the ambiguities of uh, certain global relationships and what was the death knell, if one's sounding, when, when do we hear that uh, ringing out for the East India Company? Well, it's difficult to, to be
1: precise about that because this process happens in stages. But it's very important to say that the Indian population who seek to, to, to rid their country of an English presence in a sense, or at least English government, government are really the authors of the uh, East India Company's uh, downfall in uh, 1857 with what we call the Indian Mutiny, in a very imperialistic way, but it's actually, you know, the f- first war of Indian independence. And, and how did they uh, take out their wrath and make their feelings
0: uh, clear in that year?
1: Well, there's a series of, of, uh, um, of military uh, assaults on, on the company's military installations within India, uh, all over uh, India, but especially in, in a place called Merit, Merit uh, which is in North India, um, and this leads, you know, with a, a gap of several months to the British government's re- legislative response is to say a company is no longer fit to manage an entity uh, the size of the Indian sub- subcontinent. I mean, it, it's, not run- it's not running the whole thing at this point, but nonetheless, it's, it's ruling over many more people than the British government do in, in Britain. And does that
0: mean that uh, sort of senior people within the company were paid off and went and retired or were they moved sideways or joined the government or what, what happened to them? Yeah, that?
1: that's a good question. I'm not sure to what extent the leadership of the company is blamed for this, this development within India, the mutiny as it's known. The company, of course, is uh, is its stock. Parliament's not in the business of confiscating people's property, their, their stock. And many, many families had held on to this stock for, for, for a long time. So the taxpayer has to compensate the owners of this stock uh, later on in the eight, uh, 19th century. Um, the figures I don't have, but, but presumably that's a, a large amount of money. And what the reputational, the standing of those people who'd been not involved in the company at this late stage is something I I, I couldn't comment on.
0: The structure of what you've described there sounds a, a little bit like they're bailing out of the banks of a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's right. Although um, the East India Company is dissolved by this process. It's not kept alive. It's it's killed off. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of
0: the sort of the compensation, essentially the, uh, the government, a.k.a. the taxpayer f- 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 coughing
1: up. Yeah, the taxpayer coughing up, but that's to uh, dissolve a company rather than to keep let's say RBS... Uh, afloat. This is an important point about the East India Company and the history of companies in general. The companies in the 17th century and certainly by the eight, uh, early 18th century are in the business of bailing out the taxpayer. They're the ones who've got the money to keep the British government going. That's why the South Sea Company uh, is formed, because it's hoped that it can do the same thing. But of course by the 21st century the taxpayer is there to bail out the company. Um, and that's an important structural change in the history of these corporations. Well, what a a reversal, yeah. Yeah.
0: We can't possibly finish up without touching on the fact that the East India Company kind of does exist.
1: It does. I mean, I've been told about this a a number of times. And then I walked down Longacre, Covent Garden, and you can see an outlet of the East India Company there. I didn't have time to go in there, but it seems to be sort of expensive soap, uh, shampoo. There's no gunpowder or silk or precious metal being traded. I suppose it was some semi-precious metal being traded. Although not many things could you afford with coins in there. It seemed to be quite a luxury boutique. Um, but I don't. I, I can't give you the full history of the organisation. And I'm not sure. You know, to what extent the title East India Company had a kind of you know copyright attached to it. Um, I guess copyrights were there by the 1870s, perhaps. But um, whether or not the British government was consulted about the reformation of the company, I I just don't know. Maybe they needed the money.
0: Well, we know they need the money. Hmm. So we've got uh, a possible through line. Or we we, uh, maybe just have a delicious echo. I don't know. We should finish up because we're coming close to the end of our time and I sort of wanted to use the final moments to see whether there's a single nugget of uh, information, an idea, something juicy that didn't find its way into the natural thread of what we've been talking about, something that might um, surprise us and perhaps with a perhaps with a London angle or something further afield about the East India Company.
1: The East India Company was responsible not just for kind of reinventing the city of London, but also really played a part in founding some of the world's greatest cities. Bombay, Madras, Calcutta. And what's interesting about those foundations is that they were built on toleration. That the way to build population and and the concentration of population in cities was to extend, extend religious freedom political freedom to as many people as you could in a way that was completely impossible in London at the same time so this is East India Company not just as empire but East India Company as an organization using the cutting-edge political insights of tolerance to build concentrations of population that are now twice the size of London
0: well, dr will Pettigrew, thanks for an amazing engrossing journey through the history of the east india company and looking around these walls it's it's suddenly reverberating with with history what a glorious warehouse by the way they don't make them like this anymore if people want to get in touch with you and see what you're up to and tell you what they've discovered how can they go about doing that
1: my university of kent email w.pettigrew at kent.ac.uk be delighted to hear from anyone who wants to get in touch fantastic and
0: of course if you want to take advantage of food and summer fest and so forth down here at devonshire square it's devonshiresq.co.uk but for today from here from dr will pettigrew thanks very much for listening
1: my heart aches for some fire.
0: And that's all for this week my thanks for this week to dr will pettigrew thanks to to francesco soma and tina baxter thanks to to mark Barr and bernie barkley theme and incidental music was by songs from the howling sea i'm n quentin wolf